This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi there, I'm Jane Nethercote, Digital Editor at Dumbo Feather Magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather Podcast, a monthly series where we chat to inspiring, thought-provoking guests in front of an intimate audience, and then share it with the world via podcast. Recently, we caught up with author and advocate Tara Moss. It was rainy outside, but warm as heck inside as Tara, who's just penned the fabulous Speaking Out, a 21st century handbook for women and girls, encouraged us all to find our voice and speak up for a world where gender doesn't limit any of us. Unsurprisingly, her chat with Dumbo Feather editor and publisher Barry Liberman was as generous and thoughtful as Tara herself. We really loved her advice on the importance of self-care and how we can work together to make sure the bullies don't win. Um, thank you all for coming. We're all really excited for tonight. Tonight sold out very, very quickly because everybody wants to hear you speak because I think in so many ways you're an inspiration to all of us and you speak on behalf of a lot of people, which is um, an amazing, amazing thing that you do. And I've been really inspired by your latest book and I love the opening quote or the opening um, the opening line, it says, to all the women who got us here. Mm. And the chapters are incredible because of how they articulate what's required in speaking mm. out. And it's complex. It's in your usual style. It's deeply thoughtful, lots of interesting factual information. It's very, it's incredibly useful. And I felt like I was referring to each chapter, even though I'm often speaking out. I found it incredibly helpful. And... You were saying that you wrote it in response to women who were coming up to you or people who were coming up to you at book signings and events for your first book. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, first of all, I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you to Dumbo Feather for your incredible support. Um, Speaking Out is a 21st century handbook for women and girls. And if you asked me a couple of years ago if I would ever write a handbook, <laughs> I would just be like, no. Um, but... What started as a book tour for the fictional woman became really an 18-month-long speaking and listening tour of Australia. And I spoke to a lot of people and heard a lot of stories, stories from boys and men, but particularly stories from women and girls, women and girls who related to um, some of the things I discuss in the fictional woman, some of the experiences they're going through that are really tough, things like sexual assault, things like uh, domestic violence, things like miscarriage, the tough stuff that we don't really like to talk about that sometimes is treated as taboo in our society despite the uh, incredible prevalence of these issues. But the other thing that really struck me is that people had questions. I had hundreds and hundreds of questions and they were very similar, sometimes the same questions, just worded in different ways by people, it would be a woman who was in her 60s, it would be a woman who was, you know, 18, it would be a 12-year-old girl. They would have very similar questions. And it struck me after a while that 
five minutes in a signing lineup or, you know, a 140-character tweet response was really insufficient to get to the bottom of and to properly give time to the issues that I was being asked about. And I'm passionate about people speaking out and particularly women and girls speaking out and participating more fully in public life. Um, and your beautiful introduction, thank you for that. You said I speak on behalf of others and I kind of don't want to. I actually want to allow the space for them to speak um, and for us to listen to them and listen respectfully and to hear them. And particularly people who aren't uh, fully represented in public life, uh, in positions of influence, in the media, in our fictions, and so on. And again and again, I came up against this, these questions, you know, the last chapter of The Fictional Woman basically says, over to you. Hmm. And uh, people came up and said, great, how? You know, how? Uh, you want us to pick up the baton. Tell, tell us how you do it. Like, how do you write? How do you research? Um, how do you prepare a speech? How do you do public speaking? How do you deal with criticism? How do you deal with trolls? We spoke about that just briefly. Um, mm. We had an awesome conversation in the green room, and I was like, I need to be recording this conversation. <laughs> um, we talked about, we were talking about the courage to speak mm. because uh, there's so much you, you were mentioning as well that you have uh, women that you've worked in, worked with, who have done remarkable work, mm. but they are fatigued. They're not only fatigued, but they've actually pulled away from work they're extremely good at. Very talented, very intelligent people making a positive contribution. And they've got to the point where they're no longer able to make that contribution because of threats that they're getting. Online threats or otherwise being bullied. And this, to me, is a very serious and very present issue in our culture. This is a matter of democracy. It's a matter of what future we're going to make. If the bullies win, if we let the bullies win, we are all in trouble. Um, so how, how do you stay in the game? Because <laughs> well, you tough. said if you speak out about rape, yeah. you get rape threats and yeah. death threats. Yeah, and to give an example, The Guardian did that amazing research that came out recently. It came out about a week after the book went to print, uh, so we sadly couldn't put it into speaking out. But uh, they looked at millions and millions of comments on the Guardian website in, in their comment sections, and they looked at who their most trolled and frequently threatened, I mean seriously threatened, writers are. And when I'm talking threats, I mean criminal threats of death and rape and physical violence. They found that of the top ten most trolled and threatened writers, eight of the ten were women and the two men were black. So sexism and racism is alive and well, and it is showing its face online. The, that is what people are encountering. They're also encountering it in their communities and in the physical world, but of course they're getting this online and this has become almost normalized behavior as a response to people, particularly women, particularly people who are not usually heard from, people who are otherwise marginalized. The response they get is the type of bullying that I believe is designed to silence them and to push them out of those spaces so they don't have to be heard anymore. And this is not okay. So how do you stay in the game? I think support. I think um, supporting one another is enormously important. Um, each individual has to decide what they can do. And I don't, um, I don't doubt the important decisions my friends are making if they say, I can no longer write opinion pieces. I have to find other ways to be an activist because 
it pays badly and I get two weeks of death threats, it's just not worth it, <laughs> you know? If they tell me that, I believe them. I believe that they've, you know, they're doing the best that they can and that what they need to do is change what they're doing for a while for themselves, for their own self-care. That's really important. That's to, a chapter in the book, There's a chapter in the book on self-care for a whole bunch of reasons, and that's one of them. You do need to look, first and foremost, after your own well-being so you can speak out and continue to speak out. Um, and we live in an imperfect world, and sometimes we have to do things we wish we didn't have to do in order to survive it. So I respect that. I don't think it should have to be a choice people make, though, and particularly it shouldn't be a choice that women have to make, that either they're um, involved in, in public life and they get regular rape and death threats and have to have a strong relationship with their local police to be able to do what they're doing. It shouldn't be a choice between that and you know, moving away and pulling back and not, uh, you know, not doing that important work. So how do we deal with that? Well, there's a few things that we can do. Obviously, we can support one another um, when you see someone else going through this or their behavior changes, they seem more stressed, they're not sleeping. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them if there's something that you can do. Um, I have friends I've met online, like uh, Carly, who's here tonight. Um, we reach out to one another, even if we've never met before. If I see someone going through something, they put an opinion piece out there, they're getting trolled, I'll just send them a message. Hi, we've never met. I really respect what you're doing. I love the piece you wrote. I hope you're doing okay. But you said yourself, it's in the book, that you can get that there are daggers lying in wait amongst hundreds of yeah. well-wishing, hopeful, right. supportive tweets. and Those little razor blades are in there. And you don't see them coming. There's no kind of warning sign um, when you turn on your Twitter account that you're going to get, you know, hundreds of these beautiful messages of support. For example, after I went on Q&A and spoke for the first time on television about having uh, been a survivor of sexual assault, I had hundreds and hundreds of incredible messages of support and also people disclosing their personal experiences to me, which I thought was really beautiful and a real privilege. Um, and in amongst there, there were rape and death threats, those little razor blades, right? So the, there aren't warnings for that stuff, and that's why I have a very large section in the book dedicated specifically to unsocial social media, uh, online safety, and ways you can use personal boundaries to create a kind of buffer for yourself. Like? Um, well, one example would be that I never uh, use my devices in bed, I never use my devices in my pajamas. I never use my devices in a bathroom. I never use my devices in private spaces because it's not private, <laughs> right? You wouldn't open your front door and say, hello world, come on in, I'm in my pajamas here in bed. Come on in and have a peek, right? But you do open yourself up to that public space when, when you're opening your device. And I find that psychologically, mm. It's uh, very healthy to create a good boundary, a healthy boundary. I also recommend this for people who have kids, you know, if they can use their devices in the public spaces of the house, that's often a better way forward as well. And each person will find different things that work for them. But that's just one of the tips that I think is quite a practical one. Um, and again, supporting one another, knowing we have the right to report abuse, mm -hmm. knowing that death threats, rape threats, uh, threats of physical violence and encouraging someone to kill themselves are all illegal acts. This is illegal online, just as much as it is in person. Um, but I and think we have the right to not only not accept that, but to, to ban, to block, to mm -hmm. report, mm -hmm. and yes, to report to the police if that's what we choose to do. 
it's within our rights and that is um, you know, something that we need to kind of keep reminding each other of and support one another with when they encounter um, these similar types of uh, behaviours. You were saying to me before something that I think is very compelling. Mm. I still have the question, those are great techniques and I think mm. all people who function at a very high level and are in the public eye have techniques and actually telling you I watched an amazing Brene Brown video the other day where she said there is no generosity without boundaries mm. and boundaries yeah. must be understood yeah. by yourself first and then declared yes. which is I'm okay with this and I'm not okay with that yeah. and yeah. that actually you can be incredibly generous once mm. you've determined that space yeah. but you were saying something interesting to me before about being compelled mm. to speak yeah I must I must. I just have no choice. I don't want to be around and not speak out. I'm 42 now. I spent the first few decades of my life kind of coping and surviving and dealing with life. And I've arrived in a position where I have a platform and a voice now. And I'm going to use it. And I'm going to use it, I hope, to help other people get to that platform as well and help them to be heard. I didn't always have a voice. Um, and now that I have it, I really appreciate it. And I can see it has power you know, there is power in having voice. And this is why it disturbs me that fewer than one in every four people we hear from or about in the media is female. Fewer than one out of every four. It's women's voices are underrepresented. And this is why I've specifically aimed this book at women and girls, because I'd like to see that stat change. And it's possible to change it. It used to be 17% in 1995. Mm. There has been change, right? And, Maybe not as much as we'd like. I'd like to see a little bit more than you know, nine percentage points in 20-odd years. But this change occurring, and that didn't happen by accident. That happened through advocacy. Mm. It happened through people pushing against those barriers and speaking out despite the fact that they were not invited to. People didn't always like what they said. They kept doing it, right? But there's so, also the thing that we were talking, which we I kept telling you to stop answering my questions so well because we needed to <laughs> save it for, for now. But I was telling you about mm. me last night. My daughter, once mm. again, she suffers from pretty horrific asthma. And last night we were up all night and she was vomiting and couldn't breathe. And at one o'clock in the morning, I thought, right, we're going into emergency and here we go again. And I've got a full day tomorrow. I mean, yeah. it's one of the things that runs through your mind. Yeah. And then she was home all day. I didn't know if I was going to go to emergency or be here. All is well, thank God. But then I have to get dressed, go to work, mm. put on lipstick, essential. Yeah. <laughs> uh, put on your red steel if yeah. that's what works for you. Get on stage and speak out with yeah. you together. The vulnerability yeah. is crushing because yeah. I kind of really want to be with my daughter right now in my pajamas yeah. and not be out there. And I think it's something that's quite unspoken about the struggles that women have, parenting or otherwise, but being vulnerable mm. and being courageous, mm. you're compelled. It's, that's a really yeah. tricky navigation because I think women in leadership fall off once we are in our childbearing years because it's just like 
Well, there's not enough support for starters. Mm. You know that you can't, as one individual person, do everything. Right? We can't. It's impossible. And you can't do everything all the time. In any one day, you can't do it all. And I, I do hate that term. Can women have it all? You know, we we ah, it drives me nuts when people say that. What exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean can you have your Lamborghini and eat it too. It doesn't mean can you have your own private island. When we're talking about women, we're talking about can you work and have a family. Right? That's not a question we ever ask men. That one's that's a given, right? Right? Um, and I think that we need to do a lot more to let, um, you know, to allow men into those nurturing roles and encourage that culturally and socially, and do a lot more to allow women into those leadership roles and those roles in public life, and to allow that socially and culturally, so we can all be whole human beings. Right? That's where we all benefit, and then. Uh, it, I'm not saying in every situation that will fix everything, but you're not going to feel necessarily that as the woman who's in that family, it is all down to you. Whether everybody gets fed, whether everybody gets off to school in time, whether you're able to pay the bills, whether you're able to, you know, whether the house is clean, whether the, you know, all of those things, it has to be a team effort. Um, and so, for the people who have that kind of family with a team effort, it's wonderful. You know, I'm very lucky to be in a position where my Husband is with my daughter right now, and I don't fear for her in any way. She's happy. She's loved. He's a wonderful parent. It's very comfortable for them, and it's I don't I don't have that worry right now. But yeah, when you know when life doesn't go according to plan, and there's illness and things, I'm very sorry that your your daughter hasn't been well. She's okay. That's that is really tough. That is really tough. Um, so you're just going to need that more, you know, to rely on the support around you mm. and realise you can't all do all of it by yourself. So maybe talk a bit more about that finding your voice. I didn't always have mm. a voice mm. and now I do. Mm. And wow, it's powerful and I'm going to use it because I'm here. Yeah, I'm here and I'm here and in this moment I have a voice. And when I wrote The Fictional Woman, for example, I did go over some of the previous experience of me that I've had um, as a way to talk about this issue of stereotypes and labels and, and fictions to do with women particularly. And boys and men have particular fictions and labels and stereotypes that they come up against, but they do tend to be a little bit different from the ones we uh, put on women and girls. And, you know, anyone who's been around for long enough will possibly remember some of the stereotypes around me. You know, the 2002 polygraph test I was dared to take by the Australian newspaper to prove that I write my own books. <laughs> Just as an example, you know. Um, Why? Because you're too pretty. Uh, because I'm a model turned author, and that's apparently not wow. possible. <laughs> apparently that makes me some sort of, you know, uh, some oddity. Um, but, you know, there's still often, there'll be like headlines saying, beauty with brains. It's like, what do you think the other people have in their heads? Like, I don't understand. Why are these things considered mutually exclusive? And how do you think they walk around? You know, like, everybody has a brain. It's, it's this really strange thing we do in trying to imagine that as a dichotomy. Um, and it's obviously much less of an issue now because I'm 42 and I'm a parent and I'm getting older and people don't care so much about that previous career. But when I was in it, it was a very strong stereotype. Um, and it was also a time before the internet, before blogs, before social media, and all of what the public knew about me was mediated through others. 
literally. You know, I didn't have the voice I have now. In a very literal way, I did not have the microphone. Um, and there was nothing anyone knew about me that wasn't written by someone else. Mm. You know, literally. And people who often hadn't met me would be would writing these, other, you know, these things about me. So it gave me a real insight into the way we like to put people in boxes who are in the public eye, the specific boxes we reserve for women and girls, and the way that that uh, contributes to and perpetuates stereotypes about women and girls and gives us, I suppose, expectations as to even who we are, where we fit into the world, how the world works. You know, we, we take this stuff in. None of us lives in a vacuum. So we read all those many thousands and millions of articles, see all those movies, read all those fairy tales. It gives us a very particular idea of where we sit in the world. And we need more women and girls to tell stories, to write articles, to speak out, to challenge that dominant, stereotypical view of where women and girls belong. Just while you were talking, I was thinking just one thing. I was listening, going, Hillary or Trump? <laughs> Surely that's not a real question. Well, like, he's a live, he's like a live troll. <laughs> he's like the embodiment of the troll. And yeah. so... I feel like we're watching the play. play it's quite incredible. Out. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Um, but isn't it interesting? I've just had this thought, and maybe I will regret having this association later, but I've just had this thought. Isn't it interesting that you've got this extreme, sort of polarized thing happening in American politics at the moment? So you have Trump, ultra masculine, known for misogynistic comments, which are well documented, and the potential first female president of the US, right? And during the time that we had our first female prime minister, you had the misogyny mm -hmm. speech and you had um, Tony Abbott and you had the person who was the subject of that speech become the next prime minister and the minister for women. Have you heard? What an interesting time. Like it's so loaded, the gender issue, the gender question, that change, that, that forward movement is so far from being smooth and nothing. Gender is so far from being nothing, still in 2016. I find it quite extraordinary. I was, I was saying as well, a, f a friend of ours was at a film festival and Germaine Greer was there and they said, you know, you've advanced the feminist movement so much and you've done so much for women and you're a remarkable voice. And she said, I'm sorry, but we're just at the beginning. And there was an audible kind of gasp and horror and a few women started kind of crying that she would say this. And mm. But it's, I think, true to some extent. Mm. I, I think it's important to focus on the positive as well in that we have <laughs> actually come a long way. And what has done that? The feminist movement. You want to call it the womanist movement or the women's liberation movement. I don't care what term we use. But the women's movement, the women who were activists, who continue to be activists, who have spoken out, who have been jailed, who have been on starvation watch. They're the ones who got us the vote, right? They're the ones who got us into a position where we could own property, could have a job. I could write a book with my own name on it rather than a nom de plume, right? These were all things earned for us by the women who came before us, which makes feminism one of the most successful human rights movements in the history of the world.
We don't ever say this, right? But it is true. It's true. It is a remarkable thing that's taken place, and it's taken a very long time. Unfortunately, it will continue to take a very long time because you have centuries and centuries of history that has led us here. And these are some of the issues that I explore in The Fictional Woman, the fact that you can look at history and plot out very clearly how we got to where we are. None of it is mysterious. It's not even remotely mysterious. But what we've got still is a cultural hangover. We have um, a problem with distribution of wealth. We have a whole load of issues. We have our, you know, our, um, our corridors of power still very much overwhelmed by the, the male side of the population and you have us in this position that is not surprising and it's just going to take a while longer it's going to continue to take work and that again isn't going to happen by itself so when the turnbull cabinet came in and it was a win for women as the as the press put it i still thought to myself it's there's still more than three male voices for every one woman's voice in that cabinet it's a whole lot better than when i was writing the fictional woman it was five percent and then they had one more woman, it doubled overnight, <laughs> right? That's, a, it, you know, this is an improvement, but it does, it is kind of frightening at times, but exciting to look at how much further there is to go. But isn't that an exciting opportunity? We actually do have somewhere to go. We actually can do this because we've got this far. We know that it works. We just have to keep going. Did you always know you were going to be this fabulous? <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel that I need you in my head a little oh, bit more. You're a sweetheart, Barry. You're it's something, you know, it's something to work towards <laughs> speaking with clarity. And I know you've written the playbook, so you're saying it's a process. Yeah. You're highly prepared. Yeah. You take care of yourself. You surround yourself with good people. Mm. You make sure you do the reading. Don't yeah. just... Actually, that brings up another point. That's, in a way, mm. it's kind of like you have to be perfect. <laughs> it's kind of like but you no have one to is. swing and hit and get it every time as a woman. But you don't. You can't. I, got, like, I don't get. I don't knock do. it out of the park very often at all, and I often swing and miss. And sometimes I have a stumble when I do. You know, that's reality. I'm still going to mess up, and there's still going to be times where a question throws me, or I go beat red because I've got Dutch background. That's what we do. We change every color. Everything we're thinking is a color, <laughs> right? And that's okay. And everybody else screws up too. And even the most powerful people in the world get stuff wrong. It's just often that when women do it yes or another group who hasn't been very well represented we think of them as that wrong thing they did as an example of that entire group and that is where we go terribly wrong in our perceptions and that feeds into our unconscious bias which is something that we all have i have unconscious bias i reckon you all experience unconscious bias it lies in you because none of us lives in a vacuum we were all raised in this culture. We all live in this. We're, we are seeping. It's in, we're in it. We're soaking in it, right? But I feel like it's a nice ugliness to know about. It is. It's good to, you know, lift the scales from your eyes and see it. And there's that great Gloria Steinem quote, I have to say, you know, the, the truth will set you free, but it will piss you off first. <laughs> you know, it's true. It is actually true. It'll kind of, go, kind of go, wow, you know, and this has all been right in front of me. How did I not see it before? But, wow, what a wonderful thing to see. 
right? What a wonderful thing to actually see, to see things more clearly. And this is what we can do when we lesser, lessen our biases. We can see more clearly. It won't make us perfect. It won't make the world around us perfect, but it, it gives us strength. It, knowledge is strength. You know, it's education, it's awareness, it's, um, it's reality. It's a closer version of reality that we're able to see when we challenge these things in ourselves. I keep trying to get what you're saying to yourself in your own head. When you're mm. feeling vulnerable, when you're mm. feeling like you are in the moment of needing to speak out and it just hurts too much or you're feeling too threatened. You were talking about mm. when you were working in your capacity mm. for UNICEF and you were in the um, refugee camps. Yeah. and I lost it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I How lost you, it. And what do you say? How do you pull yourself through that and to the next uh, appearance in front of I get everyone? very disappointed with myself, of course, mm. but I try to make that a fairly short process, <laughs> you know, because it's not useful. It's like, okay, I'm here I'm in a refugee camp. I am speaking to this beautiful little girl, who's the same age as my daughter, and she is in limbo in this camp. And next to us is the next camp. They actually don't call them camps, they call them ITSs. So the ITS, the informal tented settle settlement next to us, has caught fire, okay? And nine people have just died in the last 20 minutes while I've been talking with this other family just next to them, living in very similar conditions. It's just the other ITS next to us. All because of a simple cooking accident. 88 dwellings have gone up and been ripped apart and, and those lives ripped apart in 20 minutes, right? That is how perilous it is for them to be living there. And yeah, I lose it. I lose it and I go, okay, I'm, I'm not keeping it together. Excuse me for a moment and I've got to go out and walk a bit let the tears fly out, out of my eyes, get myself together again and go, okay, you know, this isn't useful. All this emotion is human. It's okay. I'm human. Um, but it's not going to help anyone for me to be like this. I've got to be on and I've got to keep going. And I just do that, you know. And a few days later when I was uh, at a different uh, ITS and there was, a, there was an area of this camp where 13 young children had been electrocuted to death in the period of just a few months because of bad electrical wiring. And I mean bad, like they told me to wear rubber-soled shoes and I wore my Doc Martens and I could see why. They were like electrified, sizzling puddles on the ground. You could see the water from pipes between the sort of dwellings intermingled with the electric wiring, sizzling and dropping and this is what it was like living in limbo for these families. This is where they are, right? And yeah, I lost it. I lost it. And I was like, okay, at least there's no, none of the families or kids were in front of me in that moment. And I just said, um, okay, can we just take a break? And, you know, I'm not going to cry in front of these kids. It just feels like a, far too much of a gross luxury for me to be crying in front of them. <laughs> you know, spare me, woman, right? So... I was like, okay, I need a few minutes. And I just went to a quiet room and I think we lost 10 minutes of our schedule or something. It wasn't a lot of time, but I was very disappointed in myself because I actually couldn't continue. And I wish that I could be the person who could. And but you know, I, I had that cup of tea and, yes. I, and I, you know, and the ph photographer, the photojournalist who was there, he said, you know, you're doing, you're doing really well. And I said, well, I don't know about that, but we're all human, right? And he's like, we are, you know, we're all human. And 
The story's wonderful and a wonderful note for us to finish on because you're in a rather extreme situation being very strong and having to get through it, but for a lot of people it starts around the family dinner table mm. with the misogynist, racist family member yeah. who actually, as someone said, presses all your buttons because they were the ones that installed them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a line, yeah. And, you know, I think it's does, it starts with yourself and that inner critic that just says, you are not enough, mm. you are not good enough, you need to shut up because you don't know what you're saying. Mm. Getting to a point of knowing yourself and loving yourself enough to say, I'm worthy to speak. Yeah. And then <coughs> starting at the family dinner table mm. where it can be, the, the ante is really high. And yeah. then what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is practice, practice, practice. And you know what? You're human. Things will get to you. Just know that, that there's another side. You can get through to the other side. It won't last forever. This moment won't last forever. And whatever happens right now actually isn't the end of the world. Mm. If I just passed out in front of you, it was terribly embarrassing, I'd still be okay. Thankfully, right? I'm lucky. I'll be okay. It's all right. It's all right if you screw up and you get something wrong. And that, that thing you're talking about, though, is such an important um, way to look at it, the fact that these buttons have been installed, right? And it's not just by that family no, member. Culturally. It's culturally, this is big scale stuff. It's like the, the large project of gaslighting women. The gaslighting of women has taken place for centuries. The gaslighting meaning, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the psychological term, it, it's, um, it's a form of mental manipulation where in its most extreme form it can happen in domestic violence situations or child abuse situations where the target of that abuse is told they don't know what they're talking about, the abuse actually didn't happen, um, they're told their memory of it is not correct, um, they're be being emotional and hysterical, they're crazy and so on and so forth. This is also what we've told women for centuries. Do you remember wandering womb theory, you know, in the hysteria, right? We still use the term hysterical with women all the time. That's pretty gross considering the actual history of hysteria and the forced hysterectomies and you know, hospitalization and incarceration of women for hysteria, a made-up condition, right? Like if we look at the history, it's actually quite disturbing to think we just throw that word around. And um, in the chapter of the book, book called Shush, there are several examples I give of very high-profile women at the top of their game, women with power, women with influence, who are experts, who are being told they're hysterical, calm down, dear, shush. And not only that, but in a public context. So parliamentary question time. Senator Penny Wong being told by Senator Brandis, you're becoming hysterical. Um, the PM uh, uh, in the UK telling a woman um, parliamentarian, you know, calm down, dear, calm down, dear in parliamentary question time. Calm down, dear, listen to the doctor, calm down. And the casualness with which we shh women tell them they're being hysterical. And you listen to the audio, you watch the video, and you see they are so far from being hysterical. They're so far from acting in an irrational fashion, right? You think, why do we do this? Why do we keep doing this? And if that is what happens to very powerful women, women with power, while the cameras are rolling, while there are witnesses, what happens to regular women in everyday life who don't have that much power? And that is the thing we need to really think about. And why I think speaking out 
in whatever form, if it's in your workplace, your family unit, or in the public sphere, is so incredibly important. The more women and girls speak out, the more that becomes normal, and the less we will see this kind of public gaslighting of women and this assumption that women are, are hysterical and should not be listened to. Tara, thank you so much you, for sharing your wisdom with us tonight. Thanks so much for joining us for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This episode was produced by Beck Fari and me, Jane Nethercote, and coordinated by Serena Ashmore. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation, or you can hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. We'd absolutely love it if you could let us know your thoughts by reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help us to find more listeners. Or you can send us an email with suggestions to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.